So much of what makes law school hard is the things you choose to do during it. If I think the law school experience of someone who is just going to classes and only doing that and nothing else is very, very different from the law school experience of someone who's involved in a bunch of clubs, wants to clerk eventually, goes to every office hour. I mean, a lot of it is what you choose to make it. And I think the core is still hard, but it's not nearly as hard as the average experience, I guess. Like you get to pick and choose and most people are going to choose extra work on top of it, which is just something you need to be aware of. Hello and welcome to the 7th Age Podcast. I'm Joey Ping, and on today's episode, we check in with four 7th Sagers of yore to see how they're doing in their 1L year. They've got advice for incoming students, opinions about cold calls, and good news for those of you who might be dreading law school. This was originally a webinar, so you'll hear questions from attendees at the end. Hi everyone, welcome to the webinar. I'm David, I'm a partner at Seven Sage. I'm here with Aaron Thier, he's a manager and three 1Ls and we might have more joining us. Up, oh, one just joined us, John Quinn. I'd love it if all of our panelists, just uh, if you could each introduce yourself, maybe tell us where you go to law school, tell us a little something about yourself, give us a fun fact. Samrat, do you wanna go first? Sure. My name is Samrat Basani. I'm a 1L at Columbia. I used to be a transactional attorney in India, and I'm here to do the same thing, but in a different country. Brad? Hey, everyone. I'm Brad Carney. I'm a 1L at Harvard. And fun fact about me, I eat the Tonight Dough from Ben & Jerry's. It's like I get the same flavor every single time. I can't move off of it. What's in it? Everything is in it. That's the problem. It's just like cookie dough, fudge, brownie. It's everything. That's, it's, it's amazing. So it's perfect for people who can't decide. Yes. It's the perfect food, it sounds it's, like. It's, it's very nutritious. Yeah. If they threw broccoli in that, I'd just give it to my kids. <laughs> Catherine, can you say hi? Yeah. Hi, everyone. So I'm Catherine. I'm currently a 1L at Berkeley. First time in California, actually. So I have been exploring a lot of Bay Area trails recently. Great. And John? Hi, everyone. My name is John Quinn. I am a first-year law student at Harvard Law School. My fun fact is that I can speak Mandarin and Japanese. That's pretty cool. Do you and Brad know each other? I don't. We don't. What section are you in, John? I'm in section six. Section six. Okay. Nice to meet you, too. We'll have to meet up. I'm in section seven. So, And that's the best section, by the way. So, you know. <laughs> well, I just want to start by asking all of you to compare what you expected 1L to be like with what it actually turned out to be like. John? Yeah. So to confirm, the question was what my expectation of law school was and how it compares to what I'm currently experiencing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think for the most part, it's been what I expected in a good way. I had worked for two years before coming to law school, and I definitely felt like I was maybe stagnating in terms of growth at my job, and I wanted to get back into a learning environment. And after being placed into Harvard Law School, taking all the foundational law courses, it's been really great in terms of that learning aspect because we do take some really important legal classes like property or contracts, constitutional law. And when I was coming into law school, I also had this expectation that my peers would be very talented, hardworking, talented people. And that has been the case. So I've been very fortunate to make really great friends and surround myself with some really brilliant classmates and professors. Anyone else want to talk about what you expected your first year of law school to be like versus what it was actually like? I can go. I had heard, I guess, horror stories before coming to law school that especially your 1L year, you know, can be extremely miserable. Similar to John, I'd worked for two years. So I wasn't nervous exactly, I guess, for the transition back to school, but was expecting it to be very overwhelming and just 
constantly focusing on classes. Obviously it is a grind, I think one all year in particular, but I was surprised that I was still able to get involved in a lot of other activities that made law school feel fulfilling. So for example, I was able to join secondary journals as a 1L at Berkeley, get involved in some pro bono work. And this semester, I'm trying to be better than I was first semester because I had the attitude that, you know, I had to force myself to just do homework on the weekends. But I think if you're trying to find balance between school and enjoying the outdoors or pursuing some other kind of hobby, you can definitely make time. But for me, it took, I guess, the fall semester to really get used to that. And from there, I've, you know, met classmates who kind of view law school as a nine to five job, trying to contain their homework, schoolwork, and so on in that time frame. So yeah, in that sense, I feel like you can have a more structured schedule, which is something I didn't expect coming in. Hmm. Was that your experience, Brad? I would definitely echo the structured schedule component. It's like I always schedule in gym time and ice cream time. Very important for me, especially during finals. But, you know, one other thing, in addition to what Catherine and, and John said, was the difference, and this is probably on lots of different forums, but the kind of, there's not a direct one-to-one correlation between the amount that you read and then your grade, like your output, right? And so I think the expectation, because I came straight out of undergrad, even though I was in the army before that, but, you know, it's like you kind of do your work in undergrad and you get good grades, whereas law school, one, one everyone's smart. And Two, it's like you could read to your eyes bleed, but that that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the highest grade in the class or even, you know, in the top percentile. And so it's just a little bit different than perhaps undergrad and like what you read maybe on like some different forums and, and things like that. What about you, Samrat? I think I was surprised by how backloaded the entire semester is and that it's everything entirely rests on your finals. And there isn't a lot of other stuff you can do. Even the midterms that they do provide are ungraded. And the only legal writing assignment I had, which I assume is standard for most law schools, is also ungraded. So I was surprised by how much of it is just that race to the ending during finals. Mm-hmm. And Aaron, how did your expectation of not being in law school compare to not being in law school? Yeah, I think it dovetails pretty pretty closely, actually, surprisingly. I guess what I'm really getting at for our four 1Ls is how hard is it? Because I hear from so many people that it's just a truck that hits you and you spend the next two years recovering. But it doesn't sound like that's been any of your experiences. I will say like you can do as much or as little as you want, especially like, you know, it's like, I'm fortunate to be at HLS. And like, honestly, the range for a P, right, it's just like either a low pass, which is very rare, a pass, which is majority of people and a high pass, and then Dean Scholar, which is like a couple people in your class. And so it's like the workload when you see, I guess you see some of your classmates that are studying, I don't know, like 24-7 or at least seem like they're studying 24-7. It's still like you don't know if that equals a good grade. And so it's really about comparing yourself to your own, keeping yourself honest, right? Doing practice tests. And like, are you actually answering the questions, the essays, you know, the issue spotters in a decent way? Or are you just kind of like, oh, it's good enough. It's just very hard to tell exactly how well you're doing unless you're very, very honest with yourself or you have somebody kind of, you have a study buddy, you're going over practice exams with each other, you're checking each other's answers and you're really analyzing the in-depth analysis because it doesn't matter for a lot of, at least the courses I've had, it doesn't really matter how many cases you can cite. No one really cares. It's about analyzing issues and spotting issues and, you know, cases on top is is, is like a cherry on top. So it's, it's just hard to know how much work to do. And that's the hard part, I think. 
I'd like to jump in. I think I agree with what Brad's saying. I think in addition, so much of what makes law school hard is the things you choose to do during it. If I think the law school experience of someone who is just going to classes and only doing that and nothing else is very, very different from the law school experience of someone who's involved in a bunch of clubs, wants to clerk eventually, goes to every office. I mean, a lot of it is what you choose to make it. And I think the core is still hard, but it's not nearly as hard as the average experience, I guess. Like you get to pick and choose and most people are going to choose extra work on top of it, which is just something you need to be aware of. Have you, Catherine and John, been choosing extra work on top? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that joining extracurriculars adds work, but something I was surprised about is I felt like an undergrad, the clubs were almost more intense in some ways. And I think a big part of that is as a 1L, the 2Ls and 3Ls realize that they're not going to bombard you with a lot of responsibilities that you'll take on later on because they understand 1L is very tough. And, you know, I agree with everything that Simrat and Brad have said so far. I think something I didn't realize either was the breakdown of grades. And I know Berkeley also has an untraditional grading system. And that was something I didn't really think about when making law school decisions, but not having GPAs or ABCs in my case definitely relieved some of that pressure because 60% of the class at Berkeley gets a P. So that can either be good or bad, I guess, if you worked really hard and thought you were at the top of your class, but you're median, you're technically the same as someone who might be at the bottom. But I think that's something to consider too. Those kinds of grading systems can definitely relieve some pressure that I think I otherwise definitely would have had more of for a semester at least. What about you, John? Yeah, in my case, I'm involved with various organizations on campus that take up time. And as a result, I don't dedicate all my time to studying or reading for classes. But I think it's helpful to know that law school organizations are not seen in the same way as organizations in high school and in undergrad. Because I think in high school, people would try to join a bunch of different orgs to try to get leadership roles to apply to college. And then even in college, you try to get into different orgs to put on your resume to then apply for jobs. But I think in law school, you join organizations because you genuinely find them interesting or because you like the people in them. And when law firms come and recruit on campus, it's like the vast majority of that decision-making process is based on your grades and interview. And I really don't think any employer puts any weight on law school organizations unless it's maybe the law review. So I think it's helpful to keep that in mind. You know, it'd be really interesting for me to hear from each of you, starting just with you, John, what organizations you're actually in, why you chose to do them, and, you know, whether it has any bearing on your professional ambitions. Yeah. For me, I'm involved in a number of organizations. I'm involved in APALSA, which is the Asian Pacific American Law Students Association, and that has provided a really great community for Asian American students. I'm also involved in the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project, and that's an organization where you advise a startup on their legal issues. I am also part of the Harvard Business Law Review, and that's a journal that outputs various articles on topics that concern both business and law. I am part of the Harvard Asia Law Society, and that's an organization that's dedicated to fostering relations among Harvard Law students and Asian leaders in the legal sphere. I think those are my main ones, and they're all, I think, interesting in some way or provide some sense of community in some way, which I'm grateful for. So clearly something like a Palsa is something for a community. What about the business-oriented activities? Are you doing that because you're trying to learn how to be an entrepreneur or because you want to spend time with other people who have a, an entrepreneurial mindset or because it's going to look good to potential employers? 
Yeah, in my case, I think it's mainly to learn about the legal issues that startups face. In the case of the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project, I really don't think it's going to look super impressive on a resume because going back to my previous point, employers, they place the most emphasis on grades and how you interview. What about you, Brad? What are you involved in and why? I have kind of gotten out of a lot of orgs. So I was a research assistant, actually, like my first term, and I told myself I wasn't going to do anything extra. And then I somehow ended up in the as a research assistant for the vet clinic. I'm also so so I've kind of like, I'm like, oh, hey, let me finish this term and we'll start again in the fall. I'm part of BALSA, which is like the, the black law students at Harvard. And that's like a more of a community thing. And outside of that, I just subscribe to a lot of newsletters. You know, so I've been to a couple moot courts, for example, right, where the attorneys are about to sometimes in like a couple of weeks, they're about to argue in front of the Supreme Court. So I get to just see stuff like that or, you know, interesting speakers or debates. So that's really I, I'm more like a newsletter person. I just go to things. Samra, what about you? I think just like Brad, there are a bunch of organizations that I'm on the list search for, and I do show up to events occasionally. But in terms of the ones that I'm actually really participating in, I would say APALSA, also SALSA, the South Asian Law Students Association, where I think I'm involved a bit more, and the Business Law Association, which generally hosts workshops and panels like this one, I guess, but with practicing attorneys relating about their experiences and sometimes their first year. So a lot in common, I'd say. Mm. Catherine? There's definitely a trend, I think, in the activities I'm involved in. I'm in the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, Privacy Law at Berkeley, Coalition of Minorities in Tech Law, Legal Automation Workshop. So this is a pro bono project where the team I'm on, we basically try to automate needs in the legal industry. So we're working with the ACLU of Louisiana to build an app for them for client intake purposes right now. Aside from that, also in APALSA and Asian American Law Journal. And Catherine, same question that I asked John. So are you in some of these activities because... It's going to give you a leg up professionally because you just want to learn and you're interested, or are they all for social reasons? Yeah, so I, I think it's a mix of everything. A big motivator for me to come to Berkeley was my interest in law and technology. So seeing the opportunity that I could apply to be a 1L representative, for example, for privacy law at Berkeley, Coalition of Minorities in Tech Law, definitely wanted to take that opportunity. At the same time, APALSA was kind of, you know, my affinity group of sorts, trying to seek community in that way. I think something a little unusual about joining two secondary journals is that I wanted different things out of both. So for the tech law journal, which is pretty big at the school, I'm the junior web and tech editor. So I wanted to see the operational side of how a secondary journal worked at Berkeley. So I don't actually engage in article writing or anything like that. But then for the Asian American law journal, I was very interested in still getting involved in Asian American scholarship, which is something that none of my doctrinal classes could offer. So I'm kind of getting fulfillment in that sense, getting to edit a student note this semester, but at the same time, gaining exposure to another journal, seeing what they do in the backgrounds and operationally. Mm -hmm. Just by show of hands, how many of our panelists here knew what you wanted to do or thought you knew what you wanted to do with your law degree when you entered law school? So everyone does. And now by, by show of hands, how many of you have changed your mind so far? Brad has. Brad, tell me about that. What did you want to do and what made you start to change your mind? So maybe this is cheating and I'm sorry if it is. So I knew I wanted to be a litigator and it's changed to perhaps like litigation, but more specifically like regulatory, cyber, privacy, 
stuff, generally, like broadly speaking. So like maybe more on the regulatory side. And the reason why that changed is because we have a class here. Maybe everyone else has something like this called um, legislation and regulation. And I really didn't know about the regulatory state in the field of law. And after this class, I was like, holy crap, there's this entire entirely different field that I didn't even know to look at and to look like where exactly I could fit in this scheme. It's big in DC. And so I, I just didn't know about it until I took a class. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Hmm. Aaron, I think, did you work with everybody on the panel today? I did. I did. So part of what you were doing when you're working with them, right, is, is to help people articulate their vision of what to do in law school. I'm also really curious to what extent that was like a blueprint for what you ended up doing and what extent it was just pure marketing that ended up having nothing to do with with your law school experience. I'm very curious about this too, particularly with respect to the the why essays that we fret over for so long. You know, you do the research and you identify these organizations and you try to like, you know, figure out what, what the school's culture might be like and then you articulate you know, here's here's why that appeals to me and here's why I'm a great fit. And I'm I'm just curious how, how much of that why essay material was actually borne out when you arrived at law school. Well, I can say that, Aaron, I remember specifically talking a lot about veterans issues. And you know, like, I want to have, I want to be at a place where I can have a media impact. And I truly did do that. You know, it's like, oh, I did something to further, you know, veterans and the veterans clinic does great work. So I think in that respect, I was able to like see, okay, I wrote about this and I'm going to just do it. Even if it kind of like, maybe it hurts my grades, maybe I'm just lazy. But yeah, so I, I think I definitely kept that in mind. You know, you never want to lose that why, because I think it is important. I actually don't remember exactly what I put in my why essays. I, I know there was a general theme of law and technology as well, but I feel like I, you know, cited specific clubs that I was interested in getting involved in. Don't remember if those are the ones I'm now interested in, but I think, you know, it did serve as a guidepost of sorts coming in, knowing a general theme. And then, you know, you go to info sessions, meet other students, and you might tweak that a little bit. We we can maybe touch on this later, but if anything, Aaron, I feel like what you worked on with me might my diversity statement has been something that I've adapted and really been able to use in terms of applying for certain positions or seeking summer internships. And that was something I didn't necessarily expect. I'd love to hear about that, Catherine. How does that work? How did your diversity statement turn into job material? Yeah. So I remember being pretty anxious when I was working on it for law school, just because I feel like all of us think that, you know, we're diverse in some sense, but is it the most compelling way or are we really showing how we're unique as an applicant and how we can contribute? But I think that was the first time for me that I was, you know, really reflecting on my identity, things that I had done in the community that I could bring to a law school. And I knew I wanted to go into private practice at a firm one day. So as early as I think August before, before 1L Fall even started, I was trying to seek out some mentorship opportunities with programs, organizations that did career coaching and so on. And many of them required a diversity statement of some sort. So at first I was basically just sending in what I had worked on with Aaron. And then over time, when December comes along and as a 1L, you can apply for some diversity roles or 1L summer associate roles in general, they all require a personal statement. And at that point, it's more so, you know, a narrative of not only how you might be diverse or be able to contribute to a firm, but, you know, just kind of your whole story and intertwining different things that you've been involved in in law school. So I've been able to work on many, many different versions, but I think at the foundation of it is what I worked with with Aaron for the diversity statement for law school. 
I, I should say that Catherine says she was anxious about it, but, you know, immediately it was clear not not only was this a, like a lovely articulation of the, the value and importance of diversity, but Catherine herself had also undertaken like 10 big concrete projects <laughs> at her, at her like, there was a, a tremendous wealth of material. But Catherine, this also reminds me, so we, we also did talk a little bit about whether you would pursue a joint degree, an MBA, a JD MBA. I, I'm just curious about whether you, whether you feel like the JD is going to be ultimately sufficient for what you want to do or whether, you, whether you're still considering pursuing another degree as well. I think it is sufficient. I think actually going back to school, I was reminded that I don't love doing school. Um, like I, I don't know, I made it through college, but I didn't love it along the way. And also I think my interest has tweaked a little in the sense that I was interested in aspects of finance originally and thought I would maybe do something more transactionally related, even if it was interested in tech, but now I'm more interested in litigation. And I think having a joint degree wouldn't necessarily support me career-wise and the extra classes and costs. I don't know how beneficial they would be. I suppose I have a, a, a similar question for Samrat, because we also talked a lot about sort of career trajectory and stuff. Samrat was already working as a transactional lawyer. And I'm curious, Samrat, whether the, you know, we, we talked a lot about how to articulate the nature of your interest in an American JD, the American legal system and that kind of thing. I'm just wondering how, I don't know, how how uh, how those expectations have been borne out. Like, is, is the American legal system sort of giving you what you were hoping to find? And are you, do you feel like... Like, I don't know, have your plans changed in any way or is this sort of what you anticipated? So uh, my plans haven't changed at all. But I think a large reason for that is that I like the law. I, I don't love the law. I, I, I do this because it's something that I've been good at and it pays me a lot more money than a similar amount of time in most other careers would. And that that's it. I mean, I, I like the law and I like thinking about the law. But if I if, if someone asked me to do this for free, I just I simply wouldn't. And it's I, a transaction. It's a transaction. And that's why I want to be a transactional attorney. But I would say that what <laughs> has evolved, though, I will say is this might be a bit of granular is I had a very specific perspective of the kind of transactional attorney I wanted to be. And that's brought in a lot, partially because of just the viability of different practice areas in a different legal market, but also because I've been exposed to a lot more practice areas than I would have been when I was just working in one team of one law firm, for instance, like funds practice or just a whole bunch I could throw out. But it's just while my vague idea of wanting to be a transactional attorney has stayed the same, the actual practical differences in what I could be doing day to day could vary a lot. And I think it's important to remember that when you're thinking of the litigation transactional divide, the divide is kind of artificial. And there are a lot of practice areas that really complicate the matter, both in terms of what you're doing for your clients and what your day to day actually looks like. You know, in a perfect world, what would you be doing if you did, if you weren't a transactional lawyer? You don't <laughs> love it. I would be a librarian if I if I had zero money worries. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. Give it give it ten years and become a librarian. <laughs> well, if any of our guests have a question, you can raise your hand. We do like to hear your voice, or you can type it into the chat box or the Q and A. But in the meantime, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about cold calls and how scary they are. John. Yeah, I think it's very normal to be nervous 
before your first class because no one has really ever experienced a cold call before. But I think after the first week or so, you get used to it. And people have this fear that if they answer something in a pretty unintelligent way, their professor or their classmates will remember them and perhaps label them in a certain way. But that's absolutely not true. I think everyone stumbles a little bit. Everyone is always focused on themselves and if they personally messed up. And so if everyone in the class is thinking that, then no one really pays much attention to how other people answer the cold calls. Although I think one very minor caveat is that I have heard that maybe one or two sections at HLS have certain professors that do grade you on your cold call responses. But I think that's definitely the minority of professors, like maybe one or two professors that do this. So if you do find yourself in that situation, then of course, cold calls become more meaningful. But for the most part, I wouldn't worry about it. Samrat? Sorry, I'd just like to jump in with regard to worrying about getting it wrong. I think that like there, there are two important things to remember is that one, for a professor, a wrong answer is very helpful because it lets them explain not just what the right answer is, but why you might think that that might be the right answer. And that's very helpful. I've seen professors be put out that someone had the right answer. And that's not because, you know, they wanted to embarrass someone, just because it's very helpful while teaching to have examples on what could seem reasonable, but just doesn't end up being correct. And secondly, law school's hard. And a large part of law school is less the actual issues and more thinking like a lawyer. So in that regard, you'd have to, considering the intake of students that professors see every year, you'd have to be incredibly and exceptionally wrong for them to even register that it's a weird mistake. So it's very, very unlikely that any of you, like unless you go out of your way, it's very unlikely that you would be able to answer a question in such an incorrect way that anyone would actually remember later. You'd have to be trying. What about you, Catherine? Are cold calls scary? I don't like cold calls, but I don't know. I, I think my experience, it hasn't been really bad. I don't know if it varies school to school either, but I think that my professors more so do it to make sure everyone is participating at some point and that the same voices aren't being heard. So I know some people who technically were never cold called because they would always raise their hands. So the professors just, you know, would never call out, calling them unexpectedly. But yeah, I, I think that a few of my professors actually utilized a panel system of some sort. Like if, if you're last name falls under here, right? Expect every four days that your group will be on call. Some went as far as, you know, in a big class of a hundred people saying that on this day, you'll be responsible for coming to the front of the classroom and only these four people will be answering questions. So I had a lot of preparation sometimes. Other times it's kind of just going. And if you didn't do the readings as carefully as you hope to, you're probably paranoid and hoping you don't get calls on. <laughs> um, but overall, as someone who I guess isn't always raising my hand and I don't like cold calls, I survived it. I think that everyone can. And it's definitely good practice too, right? As a lawyer, sometimes things, a partner might ask you to answer a question right away. So being prepared, these are all things that you'll use in law school and beyond. Brad, I see a lot of head nodding. Yeah, I, my section has a lot of fun with cold calls. We have at least one person who's just like absolutely hilarious and always just throws in something extra. I threw out in con law, I was like, professor asked me a question. I was just like, I don't know, feeling froggy that day. She's kind of, she's sometimes kind of hardcore. And I was like, Youngstown for 200. And I got, she laughed. It was a risk. She laughed though. And I was, it was good. So it's like, it's not that serious. It's like, I, I don't know. I don't take it that seriously because it's like, what are you going to, are you going to yell at me? So it's fun. Most 
most of the time. I think the only time it's not fun for me is when I know I didn't read. And I'm, I'm what scares me is the paranoia from like, oh my God, if I get called on, I'm going to kind of have to, I'm either going to say, I don't know. I didn't read. I'm sorry. Or you try to like BS your way through, but you have to pick one. And the latter is sometimes difficult. So that's mostly like where a lot of my worry comes from is, is just like if I had a some event for, a, you know, whatever, and then I just didn't get this reading done and I know they're going to grill hard on the facts. It's just like, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really write that down. I don't remember. So I want to come back to that actually, Brad, but first I'll just take a question from Gaurav. So you can unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi, everyone. Thank you for hosting this panel. So my question was, have you seen any of your peers' interests change over 1L? And how difficult would you say pivoting between interests is during the course of your JD? Yeah, I think in my case, it's it's very common to see my classmates and my friends change their interests. I think changing your interest in law school is seen the same way as changing your major in college, which was very frequent for a lot of people. So it's definitely not seen as something bad. And I wouldn't say that you have to commit to a certain type of practice, whether that's litigation or transactional work, up until you start full-time at, let's say, a law firm. And even once you do start at a law firm, a lot of law firms will give you the flexibility of spending one year working in litigation and then the next year working in transactional. So a lot of law firms do structure their first couple of years, or at least their first one year as a rotational program where you can try out different interests. So I'd encourage people to come in with an open mind and be flexible. Well, thanks, Gaurav. If anyone else has a question, you can raise your hand. Brad, I I did want to come back to you and really to everybody and just ask, do you just straight up do all the reading? Do you attempt to do all the reading? (laughs) Do you use study aids? You know, are you reading summaries of the cases? I'd just love to hear what it actually looks like to do the work or to do the work. I like to, I, I don't know, I don't like the way they organize law school. I'm, I'm just be honest. And so, and I was also an SEO. I had some guidance before law school. So I'm going to preface with, with all of that from a, another. Can you explain what SEO is? I'm not sure everyone knows what that is. Yeah. Before I got to law school, the summer before law school, it's like a two week, like basically like law school boot camp, how to do law school. You kind of learn from professors at different schools, give you not tips and tricks, but just like, hey, here's how I grade exams. This is like, generally speaking, what you're going to be trying to do. And then we worked at a big law firm for like the summer program. From that, what I try to do is go like law school is mostly like small to big sometimes like the concepts, right? So you'll like read individual cases and then try to put it together at, let's say, the end of the unit. What I try to do is go big to small. So I read like a like a treatise or like an examples and explanations. I'll, I'll read that about like a big concept so that I understand the con like what are we talking about and how are things connected and then go through the individual cases like with the class and it's like it makes more sense to me because it's like I already kind of know the bottom line and what I should be listening for because what I'm trying to do taking away from classes is not trying to write down a million notes because that it doesn't help me what I'm trying to do is like figure out particularly like what does the professor care about and what are the things I missed when I kind of went through the cases I don't I read the cases but I, I like I'm going to skim, depending on the class, I'll like go faster over the facts, slower the, over like the analysis. Maybe on like torts, you go slower on the facts because they matter. You know, they change everything so much or, or whatever. But and I'm really focusing on the analysis. How did the court reach their decision and, and things like that? And just really trying to think about how am I going to apply this 
at the end of the day on the final exam. Like, why does this matter? Because that's what I really care about. Not necessarily what the court said in this case, but really, how do I get a high grade on the exam? Mm -hmm. And when you say you're reading like a treatise on the law first, you're, you're going big to small, where do you find the big? Are you buying supplemental materials? Are you looking yeah. it up on Wikipedia? Oh, yeah. So a lot of, I mean, your library should have them for probably free. If they don't, check out your affinity groups, check out if you're an ACS or if you're at FedSoc, like whatever, whatever group you're a part of, they probably have free books. So go ask other people, go ask two L's, go ask three L's, whoever you're connected with, because you shouldn't, you should, don't, like, don't pay for it. I'm not saying don't do it legally, but there's somebody there who has it <laughs> legally. <laughs> What about the rest of you? Does anyone try to eat the whole reading? And if not, like, what are you using a similar strategy? Yes, yeah, Samrat. Yeah, so I agree completely that it's very helpful to know why a case matters before you read it. I just like to advocate generally for just reading cases entirely, because I think that it is very important in the short stage to look in terms of what's helpful for exam. But I think that when you're a practicing attorney, some of your most important skills are reading cases and reading statutes. And regardless, like to a certain extent, regardless of whether something is going to be relevant on your exam or not, it's just helpful to get into the habit of reading cases. Because I think just like, I mean, if you want to look at cases as a genre, right? Like just like I mean, the genre, the more you read it, the better you are at getting to the important points. And the cases that we get in law school are already condensed so much by the authors that I think you're, to an extent, if you rely on briefs, which again, very helpful, especially in the short term. And I think there's a lot of value in reading a brief before you even read the case too. But I think not reading cases at all just means you're not really developing the skill of reading cases, which is always going to matter regardless of what sort of law you're doing. Just getting into the practice of separating the important bits from the non-important bits, which case books give you a leg up on because you know the editors do a lot of that work for you. I'm going to call on Jacob, but if anyone else has thoughts on this, you can jump in now or later. But Jacob, go ahead. You can ask your question. I just want to say thank you to all of you guys for taking time out of your day. I have like a two-part question here. So how does the difficulty at the different levels of schools, because there's different like echelons and tiers on these schools, apparently. That's one of the new things I'm learning. How does the difficulty at these schools compare? Or is it same, kind of like the same structure in the classes and or the same difficulty in the classes that they are taking? And also, how does the difficulty in preparing for the LSAT prepare to or compare to the difficulty of your first year of law school? That's a great question. What do you think, Catherine? Could you clarify, I think, the first question? At first, I wasn't sure if you were talking about like different law schools, or do you mean courses, sections, and so on within your specific school? So I'm thinking like there's different levels of law schools, like top 20, top 14, top 50. From your guys' experiences, how do you think, is it like harder up at Harvard for HLS than it might be at, let's say, Ohio State? Or is it kind of the same structure, same material being covered in just different ways? It's kind of a weird question. Yeah, I, I don't know if anyone else can speak on this better, I guess. But I, as a 1L at Berkeley, I can only really speak to Berkeley or I've heard, you know, from my friends at different law schools, how their experiences might be like. My understanding is for the most part, there are classes, regardless of where you go to school, your 1L year, you'll have to take. They can definitely vary. It sounds like Columbia, Samrat, you mentioned that your legal writing class, you know, wasn't created in the fall. Same case for mine. I have heard that other schools 
they do take it for a grade. I think every school too, whether it is within the T6, T14, T whatever, there are different cultures associated with the schools too. Some might have, you know, a more intense reputation or more relaxed and so on. So I think the best way to learn about that is to talk to current students, right? Understand how they're feeling right now, see if they are just doing school all the time and if it's very competitive or if they can make time for other activities. In terms of your second question, I think it's been really different. I think for me studying for the LSAT, I was doing it when I was working. So before my job started at 9 a.m., I would just come in an hour or two earlier, try to grind away because I knew I would be exhausted at night. Law school feels kind of constant. Um, I do make at least one day out of the week to just do nothing law school related at all. And I, I feel grateful that I can do that. But I think it's really important for my mental health too. And like another panelist mentioned earlier, I think the thing with law school is that it really much is a grind till the end of the semester. So technically you could breeze for months in the fall because you don't have exams coming up. And if you do do that, you're definitely going to suffer at the end versus the LSAT, right? It's like you should be consistently studying. There is no way, you know, the week before how hard you prep that you'll do well on it. So I think people describe law school more so as a marathon in that sense. Anyone else have, uh, well, of course you all only go to one law school, so it's, it's probably hard to answer how difficult different law schools are. But if you've talked to peers who are having a totally different experience, I'd be interested. And I, I am also interested to hear just in terms of like this beast that you have to slay, how does your 1L year compare to the LSAT? Can I jump in and John, I was about to talk about you actually. Yeah. <laughs> I just want, I think our listeners would be interested to learn that John did not take the LSAT. He took the GRE and he ended up at Harvard. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. And I think to first answer Jacob's first question and then talking about the GRE. So I think it's interesting because I think if you go to a law school that's ranked highly, I think grades matter less than if you were to go to a law school ranked less highly, because I think employers will see that you go to a top law school and accordingly place less weight on your grades. So I think at Harvard, for example, my understanding is that even if you were to have all P's, which are passes on your transcript, you can still be assured of getting a job at a big law firm. And I think that would be a different story if you were to go to a law school ranked not as highly. In our case, let's say Ohio State. So I think in Ohio State Law School, there would be more competition to get good grades because good grades matter a lot more in that context when you're applying for jobs. At the same time, though, if you are aiming for good grades at Harvard, let's say, I think it is also still tough because the caliber of the people that you're competing with, namely your classmates, might also be higher than at other law schools because the people around you are also very talented, very intelligent and hardworking. So I think it's kind of a trade-off. And going to Aaron's point, yes, so I did take the GRE. I think in my case, it was more strategic because I was considering MBA programs at the time. And... MBA programs accept both the GMAT and the GRE. And recently, a lot of law schools have started accepting the GRE in addition to the LSAT. So in my case, it made more sense to take the GRE to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. Yeah. So I think there's like a lot of literature about pros and cons of the GRE. I think generally speaking, if you can take the LSAT, you should try and take the LSAT. And I think the GRE is reserved for more special situations or scenarios. Thanks, John. And thanks, Jacob. And uh, Jacob, I wish you good luck. Lauren, you can ask your question. 
So my question was about getting on journals. I know that Catherine had talked about being on a secondary journal, and I wanted to know if that's typical as a 1L. Like I'd heard that your grades matter for getting onto the main journal, but like what is the journal application process generally like? Is anyone on a journal? So John, I think you're on a journal. Did I make that up? I, I am on a journal, but this journal is not competitive in terms of getting in or at least being involved. Unless you want to go for a leadership position. If you do want to take on a leadership position at the Harvard Business Law Review, you do have to run and there are elections. But I think what you might be referring to, Lauren, is about joining the flagship law review at every law school. So in this case, it would be Harvard Law Review. And that is a really competitive process. And I think that's a combination of both your performance at something called the writing competition, I believe, which happens at the end of the semester. So at the end of your first year, the law review will host a writing competition to see how well you write. And I think it's also a matter of your grades as well. But generally speaking, it's pretty competitive to get in. So I don't think any of our panelists are on law review. Is that right? After this year. Secondary journals. Catherine, you had talked about that. Yeah, I, I can talk about that a little more. And also, I think Berkeley is just like so weird about a lot of things that our law review process is different as well. But yeah, similar to John for the secondary journals, it's open to anyone. It sounds like some schools as a 1L, you can join these journals. There's no application process. They just take in general members. But if you do want to run for editorial or executive board positions, there are elections later on. I, I think they can vary a lot too, because I think some schools do reserve how much 1Ls can really do their first year. So it's possible that there's some kind of process for writing on for secondary journals at the end of 1L spring. But for me, if I wanted to join one, two, or there might be someone I know who's on three journals, which is ridiculous. You should not do that, but you can get involved 1L year. And then at Berkeley, at least your grades don't matter in terms of joining law review, which I think is unusual because typically I think it's if you're like top 10% or whatever, you might get invited to join and you don't necessarily have to engage in the write-on process. Berkeley doesn't consider grades. So you have to write a personal statement. You have to do a line editing portion, and then you do a comments portion. And the current people on law review have broken down percentage points. So two L's and three L's are basically reviewing your application in that sense. I think the goal is to make it more accessible, not just having grades dictate everything. But I think that is a bit unusual. And like John mentioned, grades are typically critical for joining your school's flagship journal. Thanks, Lauren. We wish you good luck. We're going to take one more question, and then I just want to ask our panelists one last question before we go. So, Ed, you can ask your question. Hello. Yes, thank you for hosting this amazing session. I just want to ask kind of a broad question, however you guys want to elaborate. Applying to law school has multiple factors. Based on your experience or from what you've heard, what do you think would be like the, based on your school also, the top factor that helped you get into law school? Was it perhaps like your letter of recommendation, your GPA, LSAT, the essay? What factors or what elements in combination helped you guys achieve to where you are? Thank you. I guess I'll say... Aaron helped me kind of just tailor my story and portray it in a way that demonstrated, like kind of allowed me to show like, hey, I have some stats, like my LSAT's good, you know, my grades are getting better. Here's like the person that like I was and here's who I am now. And like, look at all the things I've done in a way that was compelling. And I think that's just along with the stats that helped me kind of overcome this big hump of, you know, this like past history of like terrible grades. So just really compelling storytelling, I, I think, did it at the end of the day. 
Yeah, Brad, I mean, I, I do think you put your finger on it. This is the case for everyone. Your application is a story. I was going to say that the essays are a story, but really the whole application is a story, including your resume, including your LSAT scores, including your GPA. It is a story about what you did in college and how you performed on a test and what brought you to the point of applying. And generally, the more compelling and unique that story is, the better shot you have of getting in. And for everybody but John, the LSAT score is is probably the single most important component. You know, your numbers, that usually means your LSAT score and your GPA, tend to weigh more than your essay. But obviously, people do get into great schools with good GRE scores as well. I want to ask all of our panelists, we'll start with Brad, can you just give us one tip? Tell us one thing that you started doing your 1L year that you think made a big difference and, and made you happier or more productive. And we know about the ice cream, Brad. Ice cream is number one. Yes. Systematizing, if that's a word, I think it's a word, systematizing your life. I have developed systems that have lasted the test of time and it creates time because I'm systematic in the way I go about my life. I now have more time to do fun things and not just like, oh, willy nilly. What's a quick example of what you mean? I will block emails, for example. I only check emails at X time. I will block errands. I will block readings. Because I'm doing that, I'm more efficient when I'm doing said task. That takes incredible self-control. I, I don't, it's not 100%. Sometimes I, I have better and worse days. Thanks. Okay, so John, you're up next. I'd love to hear one tip that's made your life better as a 1L. Yeah, I think one tip that's helped me a lot is staying in shape. I think that law school is very grueling mentally. So if you can keep to a gym routine, if you can eat healthy, if you can get enough sleep every day, I think that will do a lot of wonders for you when you're studying and when it comes time to exam day. Catherine? I mentioned taking a day off already. If you can do that, highly recommend. I wish I could be as good as John, but honestly, I feel like for me, setting the realistic expectation that, you know, I wanted to get all these things done. I wanted to maintain good workout habits and so on. But almost for me, it, it felt, you know, assuring, understanding that I'm not going to be able to reach every single goal I wanted to, because if I wanted good grades, if I wanted to try to network and so on, it just, I think would be way too much pressure. So being kind to myself in that way and realizing, oh, I might be sacrificing, you know, how much I'm working out or being able to cook good food for myself every day. So that kind of honesty can maybe work for some people. And really, really quickly to the last person who asked the question, I, I just wanted to add a caveat because for me, I was really nervous about applying. To be honest, I, the reason I reached out to Aaron too is because like my LSAT score was okay, but I was admitted to schools last cycle that I'm now multiple points below the median for. So just wanted to add that it is so important, your numbers, but having a compelling story, you know, emphasizing your experience is really critical. And I think Aaron can do wonders if you're able to work with him. So don't be discouraged just by numbers. What about you, Samrat? I'd like to echo what Brad said about systematizing your life. I feel like I have an abysmal memory. And I think in addition to making sure you know what you're doing week to week, I think it's also very important the moment you get a chance to figure out what the big markers of your semester are. When are your midterms? When do PI jobs start opening up? When do firms start taking applications? Just make sure you have these because I think it's very, very easy to get caught up in the week-to-week -week grind and what you're doing just immediately and just ignore the bigger picture. And you will bitterly regret it later. Things like outlining. like There are a lot of big markers that you hit in your one whole year. And it's good just to have a rough idea when there. You don't need to stick to it like a blueprint, but it's very helpful to have that looking forward. 
And as for just, I, I think, David, you asked also, what do you do for your sanity? I think for me, a large part of it is just, I'm not super involved in law school. Like other than the, the few clubs I'm a part of, I just, most of my life is just not connected to law school at all. And I've, I've tried to hold on very tightly to the hobbies I had before in law school. Because like, you know, in one way or another, I've been in law school for the last nine years or so. And I'm looking forward to it being done. And I don't want my entire life to just be about the law. That's great advice. Thanks to all of you for the advice and, and just for spending an hour with us as a 1L, because I know that's a big deal. I really appreciated it. And I hope that everyone who came and everyone who's listening took something from it. If you are listening, it sounds to me like your 1L year isn't as bad as everyone says. It sounds like you can totally keep your humanity and be a successful student. So good news. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you all. Hi, it's JY again. Thank you for listening. As always, if you're studying for the LSAT, applying to law school, studying for your law school exams, or studying for the bar, come visit us at sevenstage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.